Thank you, Jenny and Gil. This is one of Jenny's like first Sundays here, and then she has to read Judges 1, and we don't usually do that to new people, but um, appreciate you doing that, reading that. Um, so, a couple things. One, we're into the Bible around here. We uh, believe the Bible is from God. It's inspired by God. Uh, it has authority, and so this is partly what you're going to hear and, and experience when you come here. If this is your first time, is you're going to hear the scriptures read, you're going to hear the scriptures taught. Um, and so if you are someone who maybe grew up in a church where they teach the Bible and you're looking for that, you're in a, you're in a good place. Um, and if you have not been around the Bible and you're interested in what's in that thing, especially some of those crazy verses like what you just heard read, uh, you're, in the good, you're in a good place uh, because we're going to be exploring uh, the scripture and exploring places that are hard maybe to, at first at least, uh, understand. Uh, part of what we do to, to commit ourselves to the, the study of scripture in this time is we put Bibles underneath the chairs. So hopefully when, when you're hearing the scripture read, you're thinking, oh, pick up Bible, open it up. So open it up to Judges, that's where we're going, Judges chapter 1, unless you want to open it up on your phone or you brought your own Bible, but it's going to be helpful to you. I'm not going to put the, the Judges scriptures on the screen behind me. I will put the supporting scriptures on the screen behind me, and so that's so you don't have to jump around in the Bible when I read other scriptures, but Judges 1, uh, you'll follow along uh, in the actual scripture. We also want to connect with you and uh, invite you into our church family, and so one of the ways that we're able to do that is if you fill out this connection card today. So during the course of, of the service, uh, you, if you would, fill that out, and it'll go in a basket that goes around uh, after uh, the service. So let's look at Judges 1. So Judges 1 in large part is about, or the book of Judges really, in large part is about failure. It's about failure. It's about God's people failing and how God deals with their failure. And I think for most of us that's like our worst fear is actually failing. We feel like life is about winners and losers and we want to be about being, being the winner. When I was growing up, um, I, I would watch the ABC Wide World of Sports, and they always had the same introduction. They would say that, that their, their show is about the uh, thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And as they were saying agony of defeat, they would show this same clip. I mean, this thing was probably shown thousands of times over a couple of decades of this skier saying all the nations that's talked about right here. Go ahead. It's okay. Go for it. Yeah, I do want the sound. Yeah. And I had to jump and I had to take Gil. And after the first round, when I saw him take old Bumble Car, I jumped. I said, right there, there, these kids know people in action on the way to happen. And it sure So that last shot became the picture that you saw as they said, agony of defeat. He became the poster child for the agony of defeat. And no one wants to be that. No one wants to be the poster child for failure. 
Um, but we all fail. For human beings, we fail. I'm fairly certain everyone in here is a, a human being. And if, if we are that, we, we fail. And so I think the book of Judges is going to be helpful to us because we're going to see both the realities of failure, but also how God deals with that failure. Um, that, as we talk about that, I think the question we then have to ask ourselves is, well, what exactly is failure, especially in the eyes of God? We all have different definitions of what success and what failure is, and a lot of it has to do with our families, the things we've experienced in our cultures, our friends, and so we have these definitions. Whether we even are, are aware of them, we have them. And so what we want to look at in this text is, well, what does God say is failure? What does God say is success? And then once I know that, then how do I respond to that truth? So Israel had become very accustomed to being a winner. That was partly because they were under the leadership of Joshua. Uh, Joshua was their military general. He was then, he took over after Moses, who's like the greatest leader of all time of, over Israel. And Joshua was a winner. His record was one loss, everything else a victory. So when he brought them into the promised land over the Jordan, went in, took, took over city after city after city, took over village after village after village, and, and totally won every time he went to battle. But then Joshua needed to retire. In fact, he needed to die. That's kind of how you retire in the Bible. You die. And they needed a replacement. And so they inquire of the Lord. This is good. That's what they should do. They're like, who should replace Joshua? And this is what we read about in, in Judges 1, the opening verses. It says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said... Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So Joshua's replacement is Judah. Now Judah is a whole tribe. That's how hard Joshua was to replace. <laughs> Had to have a whole tribe of Israel to replace Joshua's leadership. And it made sense that, that Judah was being chosen because 600 years before, one of the patriarchs, Jacob, predicts that, Joshua, or, uh, that Judah is going to be the tribe from which the kings of Israel come from. And so again, 600 years before, this is what's said about the tribe of Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So that's a pretty good prediction. Like if you're Judah, you hear that, you're like, hey, this is, this is good. I'm headed for the Hall of Fame. And so when he's given this, when this tribe is given this role to, to lead the charge against the Canaanites in the Promised Land, he teams up with another tribe, Simeon, who's also pretty, uh, has a lot of military prowess, and they knock out 10,000 Canaanites, and they overcome a very powerful king who had, he himself overcome 70 kings, and now they go against this pretty powerful king, and they uh, completely uh, depose 
him. They also take over Jerusalem, which is a fairly important city for the people of God. They also take over Hebron, and Hebron is the place where Abraham and Sarah start the nation of Israel, and that's where they're buried, and so that's a significant city. And so the, the winning streak just seems to continue, even under the tribe of Judah. But by the time you get to verse 27, where all those hard names are, we start to see that the winning stops. And so we see in verse 27, Manasseh did not drive the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. So it shifts there in verse 27, and we start to see that Israel is failing. And what they're failing at is eradicating the Canaanites from their promised land. Now, why would they want to do that? Because God had given them strict instructions to do that. He had, he had made it very clear. This is what I want you to do. I want you to wipe out all the ites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, all of them. And so we can read about God's command of that in places like Exodus 23, verse 22. Moses is speaking and, and speaking on behalf of God, and he says, If you carefully obey his voice, God's voice, do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water and will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So God's very clear. I want you to wipe out the Canaanites. Now why? Well, the main reason is the issue of worship. It's worship. It's not just, we don't like these Canaanites, let's just get rid of them. It's not just we want this land and we'd like to enjoy it. It's about worship. The Canaanites are false worshipers. They're idol worshipers. You say, well, there were probably a lot of other idol worshipers all around the planet. Yes, true. But God also wanted to establish his people in that region as true worshipers. And so it was all about worship. And this is what means success or failure in the eyes of God. Worship. That's what it comes down to is worshiping the one true God. This, this is success, so to speak. And not worshiping the one true God is failure. Now, when we hear about one people group wiping out another people group, and, and we hear that through modern ears, that's pretty troubling, and it should be. Like, these are human beings. This is serious. It's not something to take lightly. But there, there's some reasons that, that we can look at that and go, okay, this, this makes sense biblical reasons, and I, I spoke at length uh, at, about this in a, a series we did on Deuteronomy last uh, fall, another lovely book, uh, and so we, might, we may post that sermon so you can hear this in more detail, but here's some of the things that I said in that sermon that kind of give you a framework to understand the eradication of the Canaanites. So number one, all human beings deserve to die because they're sinners. 
All human beings deserve to die because they're sinners, right? And so any human being that gets to draw a breath is drawing that breath by God's grace. They're not entitled to that breath. And so instead of looking at a situation where God's wiping people out and saying, how dare he do that? Really, biblically, theologically, we should be saying, why did God let them live as long as he did when they were sinners and deserved death? So that's, that's the big picture idea that helps us understand better. Okay, how can he wipe out a group of people? Uh, the Canaanites had sinned against God by worshiping idols, right? So they, they were definitely guilty uh, in the eyes of God. And it was particularly dark the way that they were worshiping God. They were worshiping God by sacrificing their own children. They were worshiping, uh, worshiping false gods by, by sacrificing their children. Uh, worshiping false gods by exploiting men and women who were forced into temple prostitution. So it's pretty dark, pretty sinful, pretty, pretty egregious kinds of, of, of sin, of, of idol worship. Uh, God had given them serious warnings 500 years before the Israelites show up to take over. And the warnings were the, the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you're aware of those stories of 500 years before, uh, God wipes out two different cities, and those two cities are in the Canaanite plain. They're in the Promised Land. And it's his way of letting them know your sin is extremely serious. It's worthy of judgment, and instead of wiping all of you out, I'm going to wipe some of you out to give you a, war a warning. And it was a severe warning. And then he let them live 500 more years. And this was an opportunity for them to repent, and most of them did not, even though they were warned of impending judgment for what they were doing. They still kept living the way that they always had. Number four, some of the Canaanites did repent. Those of you that are aware of, of the stories of the book of Joshua, when they first come into the promised land, one of the first people they meet is Rahab. And Rahab says to the, the Israelite spies who are coming in to check things out, says, I've heard of your God, and I want to take refuge in him. Would you let me and my family take refuge in your God? And they say, yes, right? So there were Canaanites who heard the truth of God, became worshipers of the one true God. Number five, the wiping out of the Canaanites is a one-time directive. This is, this is not just an overall um, free pass to wipe out anybody that's not like you to the people of God. It's a one-time directive to wipe out the people that are inside a particular perimeter known as the promised land. And they weren't even allowed to kill people outside of that, of course, unless they came into the promised land and they had to defend themselves. But they were to make treaties with those people that were outside of the perimeter of the promised land. And those folks were idol worshiping just like the rest of the Canaanites. But he wanted to set up a people in that perimeter that were going to be the true worshipers of the one true God. And number six, Israel's relationship with God is by grace. It's not because they're awesome. It's not because they try harder than everyone else. It's, it's God's choice. He chooses them. He loves them. He puts his grace on them. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise up you as a people of the one true God. Right? So this is what's going on. Right? He's, he's setting up this new nation of true worshipers. Now, this doesn't mean that Israel doesn't have to pay a price to enter in, into this mission that God has them on. We see in places like Exodus 23, 20, verse 27, God describing what he's going to do for them and then how Israel is going to have to participate. He says, I will send my terror before you and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. 
and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So when we first look at the removal of the Canaanites, we might think, okay, it's a one and done. Like the Israelites are like in lawn chairs next to the Jordan drinking some drinks with some umbrellas in them while God just sends out some kind of hornets, whatever that means, and just completely removes the Canaanites in one day. That's not what happened. Actually, in another scripture, it says you're going to get the land inside the perimeter of the promised land that you put the sole of your foot on. So they have to co-labor with God. God's doing the hard work. He's doing the, 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 the heavy lifting. But they're having to act in faith and take the next village, the next city, the next little piece of land. And so they're having to, to get up and, and do that every day. Now, partly, and it says it in here in, in Exodus 23, they're doing that that way so that the cities are vacated and then destroyed. It's like the varmints are going to show up and they're going to take over. And I don't want that. I want you to take city after city after city and I want you to possess those cities so that you can actually benefit from the spoils of the war. He's also testing them. He's testing them. It's one thing to be really fired up for one week and to be worshiper of the one true God for one week, but to have to do it day in, day out, day in, day out, and to be faithful in the call that he's given them to take over and to establish a people that worships the one true God. So again, success in God's book, literally in his book, is to worship him and him alone. That's what success is. Now, they fail at it. They fail at it. It's like, you got one thing, Israel. <laughs> this is what you got to do, and you fail at it. And this is what we read in 27 and now 28. Um, we find out why they failed at it, at least some insight. Verse 28 says, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Later on, down in, in verse 30 of, Ju of Judges 1, the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. The end of verse 33 says, Bethanoth became subject to forced labor for them. The end of 35, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. Whenever there's repetition in the Bible, it, sh it should like be like a little, little, little ding that you hear. Like, okay, the, the, the writer is trying to tell me something. Why is he saying this over and over and over? And he's, he's giving you insight into why they made a, a compromise with the Canaanites, why they didn't wipe them out. Because the, I think what we might first think is they're scared of them. These Canaanites must have been really, you know, big warriors and scary, and they were. But after Joshua led them in and they had all these victories, they got the upper hand. And that's what it says. They had the upper hand. They were strong. They weren't scared of the Canaanites, but they liked having them around as slaves. And the reason they wanted to have them as slaves is because they wanted life to be easier. They wanted it to be easier. And so in, in a desire for a better life, for comfort for themselves, they thought, we'll give mercy to these Canaanites and we'll make them into our slaves. It started out as something that probably seemed like a very, very simple compromise. But little do they know 
it was actually going to result in them worshiping false idols, just like God had told them, that for 100% their failure rate was going to happen because they didn't do what God said. They didn't eradicate the Canaanites. You might think of it this way, like when you're going to go into a surgery, which I just did on Monday. I had a knee surgery, and uh, so this is why I'm sitting on a stool and limping around. But they had to create a sterile field in order to do the surgery. And they went through a, a, lot, a lot of effort to make it sterile inside that operating room. There's a negative airflow in that operating room that's taking all the particles out constantly. Everyone's scrubbing up for several minutes. They're putting on uh, gloves. They're putting on masks. They're putting on sterile gowns. They're wearing sterile things on their shoes. Uh, before they do the surgery, they, they, they shaved the part of my leg that was uh, going to be cut into. They, they, they put this antiseptic on it that's still on there. It's so sticky. It's horrible. Um, but they just put it all over it. And, they, and, and so they did a lot to make sure that there were no bacteria in the atmosphere. And is that because they have some kind of a, you know, a beef with bacteria? They don't like bacteria? No, it's not personal. You know, it's not personal against the bacteria. What they're against is infection. And that's what bacteria lead to. If they get into the incision, they lead to infection, and infection is a big deal. So we think, think about the, the, the Canaanite compromise similarly, right? I mean, th think, think about if, if, if they had made a compromise in my surgery. Let, let's say they ran out of latex gloves. And they said, well, for your surgery, Robert, we're not going to use gloves. We don't have any. I don't feel like going and getting any. Let's just compromise on the gloves. No! Right? I would have limped out of there, right? No, no, absolutely not. I, I don't want to compromise. I want to make sure there's no bacteria in here because I know what bacteria lead to. Same thing about the Canaanite compromise. If, if, they, if they were allowed to be there, their worship practices were there, and it would eventually lead to the infection of false worship. And that is failure. Right? Our lives are not all that different, are they? How is your spiritual sterile field? We oftentimes we make a compromise, we think that's not that big a deal. We know it's a compromise, but, but we think it's, it, it's not going to really cause that bad of an infection, and, and it seems like a microbe, but it can lead to infection, and then the infection, the disease, is worshiping false gods. Now, we don't usually bow down to, like, you know, false shelf gods, you know, little idol, wooden idols or stone idols, but, but we do easily bow down to many, many things in this world. And again, what, a lot of what we bow down to has something to do with what we've been told is success. That's really a different language for this is my God. So for some of us, success has something to do with edu uh, education. You have to have a certain level of education. We think we have to have an education for a, from a certain institution if we're going to be a success. I hear this from students sometimes. Uh, they'll say, well, Amherst College was my, my backup school. I didn't really want to go there, but I want to go to a better school. Or UMass is my backup school. I didn't really want to go here, but this is what I got into, so I'm here, right? And, and it's like, wow, so 93% of the whole planet does not have a college degree. Are they all losers? And most of them have not been able to go to UMass or Amherst College either. 
right? So who told us that, right? Where do we get that in our minds, that, that education, I've got to have a certain level of education. Some of us, it's, it's, I, I can't just have an undergrad degree. I've got to have a master's degree. I've got to have a PhD. And if I don't get that, I'm a loser. I'm a failure, right? We all have definitions of what failure is. I remember having a conversation with one of my children. We were talking about college, and he will remain nameless, but he says, uh, I, I need to go to college. I said, okay, well, tell me why. Like, not everyone should go to college. It's not, it's not the right thing. It's not the right choice for everyone. And he's like, Dad, I, I want to go to college because I don't want to be a loser. Right? And so somehow in his psyche, probably living in this crazy college town, he had, he had come to the conclusion that failure is not having a college degree. Right? We've all got that in us. Now, for some of us, it's not about the college thing. For some of us, it's about success and then whatever that means, right? So maybe that you have to have a 4.0 or you have to start your own business or, or then that kind of rolls into, well, success is I've got to have a lot of money. Whatever lot of money means. Does that mean you have to own your own home or does it mean you have to have a really nice home or does it mean you have to have two homes? That, that definition of success has, has been uh, planted in us from our backgrounds. Or maybe it's have friends or have the right friends. Want to have a certain kind of friends, that's success. Or maybe uh, if I don't have a significant other, then I'm a loser. I've got to date someone, I've got to marry someone. If I don't, then I'm, I'm a failure, right? Who told us that? Who told us that, right? For some of us, it, it, it's what our parents have told us. For some of us, what our friends have told us. Our, our culture at large has told us. I was talking to a student that has just graduated. He's not a student anymore. He graduated last year, but he hasn't found a job yet. Incredibly gifted, called. He's, he's going to have definitely a, a, a great future ahead of him, glorifying God and, and bringing much good to people. It's just taking some time to get his feet on the ground. And he said, I had to stop looking at Facebook and Instagram because all my friends are posting all the great things they're doing this September. And they're in med school and law school, and they're doing this and they're doing that. And I'm not. I'm waiting, and I have no job, right? And so that definition of success is in there. Whether you realize it or not, it's, it's in there. And I want you to hear success and failure is based on worship. <laughs> A worship of the one true God. That's success. Now, the problem with that is that we can't just try harder to become a true worshiper of God. <laughs> it's very different. Like, we, we, you know, if we don't do well on our SAT, we just try again. Just try harder. Take an online class. You know, just like, I'll do whatever I got to do. I'll just get better. But, but failure at worship, we can't fix it ourselves. It has to be fixed by God. There's this really interesting conversation that Jesus is having with an idol-worshiping, immoral woman who is a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were really the byproduct of the Israelites intermarrying with idol worshipers and then developing a false religion. And so Jesus is having a conversation with this person, which was big in and of itself. Um, and so she starts a debate with the divine son of God about worship. Probably something you shouldn't do, but she didn't know exactly who he was. And she debates with him, and she says, you Jews, you say worship at Jerusalem. We Samaritans say worship in Mount Gerizim. 
Which is it? And Jesus says this very profound thing. He says this in John 4. This is on the screen here. He says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. That, that is a glimpse of the heart of God right there. Jesus saying to her, God is looking for true worshipers. Right? He was looking for true worshipers when He was establishing Israel. He was looking for true worshipers when Jesus was walking on the planet. He's, he's looking for true worshipers right now. And Jesus teaches her both how you become a true worshiper and how you continue in true worship. And he says how you become a true worshiper is spirit and truth. Now, what's he talking about? Well, the truth is the, the truth of the gospel, the good news about Christ, right? Because he is God himself, become a human who's dying on the cross to forgive sin. And that sin is rooted in false worship. That's the ultimate sin, is worshiping another god. And so the truth is that we who are idol worshipers can be forgiven of that idol worship. But not only is there that truth, but there's a spiritual work of grace that God does in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking both of the work of the Son and, both, and the work of the Spirit. And so when we believe in that gospel, the Holy Spirit is coming to live inside of us and create in us a little temple of worship that is now wireless. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to Mount Gerizim. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. It's wireless. Because we believed in the gospel and we've been forgiven of the sin of idol worship and the Spirit of God has come to live inside of us, we can now be a true worshiper. And he says, this is what the Father is looking for. Now, for some of you, you've never believed that gospel. Perhaps you've never heard it. Perhaps you're hearing it now and thinking, well, I need to ask some questions and get some more information about what exactly he's talking about. And I would encourage you to do that. But if, but if you come to know enough of what Christ has done for you to forgive you for your false worship, to receive that forgiveness today. It's why Christ came. It's why he died on the cross. It's to forgive us of that and to bring us into true worship. Then once we're true worshipers and we have that capacity to be true worshipers, it still involves truth and spirit. This is why when we come together, you're going to hear truth prayerfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to sing the truth of the gospel prayerfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to take the bread and the cup, which is a sign that points to the truth, and you're going to experience that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what's going to go on in this room because of the truth and the Spirit is true worship. That's what we want to be about in this place. It's true, spiritually empowered worship of the one true God who manifested himself in the Son of God, right? who died on the cross for the sin of false worship to not just save us from false worship, but save us to a life of true worship. And that true worship is now, and it's forevermore. 
That's what we're going to be doing in heaven. We're going to be worshiping at the very core of, of, of who we are. And because of that, yes, then we can go back to education, which is not a bad thing. It's just not a God thing. And as a true worshiper, we can handle education in a way that will bring glory to God and will bring good to ourselves and others. We can go back to perhaps a relationship with a spouse. Now that that, that, that spouse is not our God, we, we can enjoy that relationship. That relationship can actually bring glory to God and, and good to ourselves, our spouse, and to others. We can go back to working hard or managing money or wh- whatever. Those things aren't, aren't inherently bad. They just are when they are our gods and goddesses. And so again, perhaps for the first time, turning away from those gods and goddesses and toward the one true God who's died in your place, the death deserved by all of us. Right? I said earlier, humans are sinners. They're worthy of death. That's us. But Christ has died in our place so we might be forgiven, brought back into true worship with God. Those of us that are Christ's followers, we've heard that gospel, we've responded in faith, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have the opportunity to look up for our Canaanite compromises. That's partly what happens here. When, when you see me revving up to communion, that's what you ought to be thinking. Okay, I need to confess. I need to, conf- I need to confess, because we all got it. And it sneaks in, and it's like a little microbe, and it just pops in, and we don't even realize it's there. And then in this moment, oftentimes, the Spirit's at work, the truth's been preached, and it convicts our heart, and we start to realize, I, I allowed a Canaanite compromise. I allowed a microbe to come in that could lead to some infections. And so let, let's, let's confess, let's repent, and let's worship the one true God. We always come to this table. We do this every week. It's not like that in every, every church, but in our church. We come to this every week. And we're reminded of, of Jesus when he was with his disciples on the night he was, he was betrayed. He was about to die the very next day. He took bread. He broke it. He blessed it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. He knew that in order to rescue them from false worship, he would have to give his life. There was no other way. And so he lets them know, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to give my body for you. In the same way, he takes the cup, and after he blesses the cup, he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. It's interesting. He says a new covenant. What does that mean? Well, Old Covenant is the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God. The New Covenant is the New Testament and the New Testament people of God. And that's what's going on in this room. And so not only is he interested in saving individual people who are turning away from idol worship and and toward true worship, he's gathering those worshipers into a community of worshipers. And that's what a church is. It's the Spirit-empowered Jesus worshipers that are living in community. That's what we want to be here in this church. And so if you are a Christ follower, repent from those Canaanite compromises. Not because that's saving you, right? You're doing that because you are saved, right? Israel wasn't pushing out the Canaanites because they were having to earn the promised land. It had been given to them by grace. And now because of the grace of that salvation, they were called to holy lives. We're no different. 
So as a Christian, as a Christ follower, to, to turn away from those false idols and toward the worship of the one true God and doing that because you are saved. You are given the grace of the new covenant. And so we were reminded every time we come to the table, like this is the family dinner table. What's at the center of it? It's Jesus. It's a crucified, risen Jesus who will come back. This is what's at the center of our, of our church, the worship of Jesus, the truth and the power of the Spirit. So let's take some time to, to confess, to pray, and then to take the bread and the cup to be reminded of what Christ has done to save us from our old lives of idol worship and save us to the new life of worshiping the one true God. Let's pray. God, you are good. And there's nothing wrong with your sterile field. You're holy. You are holy. You're perfect. And Lord, to come into your presence and worship you, Lord, we have to be washed clean. And you have done that. If, if, if we've received you by faith and what you've done on the cross, we've been washed clean. So God, thank you for that. Thank you for those in the room that are receiving that for the first time ever allowing you to wash them clean by grace through faith. But Lord, we, we don't want to exploit that. We actually want that to, to launch us into holy living, God, life-giving, holy living, where we're constantly repenting and moving towards you in faith, Lord. So use this time of confession, of repentance, to remind us of how good you are, how holy you are, and how you're calling us to worship you as the one true God with all of our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, God. We pray your blessing over the bread and the cup in our time of taking it together, both as individuals, but also as a community, Lord. Would you bind us together as a, as a worshiping community that is a witness to this, this world, this, this, this valley, these campuses, that others would come and hear this good news and become true worshipers of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.